this is an interesting passage. And I think it speaks a lot to the present condition of uh, really how our culture is trying to disciple us, trying to disciple our hearts, trying to disciple our reactions to things, which makes it a really quite powerful text in a lot of ways and one that we can return to again and again and the Holy Spirit will convict us of a new thing every single time, which will happen with all passages of Scripture, I think. Uh, but this one's maybe a little bit more blatant and a little bit more of a sledgehammer than some other texts. Or, or maybe a scalpel is a better, a better turn of phrase. Um, if you were to describe the message of Ecclesiastes so far, it might be something like this, that we should be living life fearing God, that is honoring God in every way possible, and that we should enjoy the blessings of life that God gives, especially when he gives us the opportunity and the ability to enjoy those blessings. Ecclesiastes is all about life under the sun, and constantly it's it's trying to tell us to Yes, enjoy life, but enjoy life through fearing God, through honoring God with all that we have. And it's when we honor God uh, that we will find the most pleasure, the most fulfillment, the most meaning in all of life. That's consistently the pattern uh, that... that um, that Solomon, who wrote this book, now one of the kings of Israel, is trying to tell us. Now remember Solomon, as a king of Israel, is known for his immense wisdom. He wrote this book and the book of Proverbs. As well as a couple of other things that are maybe important to keep in the back of your mind while you read this chapter. Uh, again, over the course of the, the week and as we go through it again in the next few minutes. Uh, number one was... Uh, Solomon was very wise and he had dedicated himself to gathering as much wisdom and knowledge as he possibly could. We've seen this already in the book of Ecclesiastes. But when he talks about then wisdom, he's often talking from his experiences of trying to gather wisdom from different places. And so keep that in mind. The second is that it, Solomon, uh, as, as king of Israel, was extremely wealthy so he knows what it means to have as much wealth as possible and not come to nothing. And he also had thousands of concubines, which are, which, and, and, and those concubines were mostly, mostly uh, women who were not uh, Jewish. They didn't worship God. And scripture says that those uh, those women drew Solomon away from the worship of God, worship of God to the worship of idols, and um, and you see that play itself out a little bit in this text when he talks about women, and so we'll get to that. Um, so there's a couple of really hard to interpret passages in this chapter in particular, but just keep in mind that Solomon is writing from a vantage point of experiencing the excess of the world, the, as many excesses as you can imagine. 
and that that informs how he talks about all of these things well we'll leave it there for now but just keep it in the back of your mind this passage you maybe noticed is different than almost all the other passages that we've seen so far in this book there is a noticeable tone shift that happens uh, but Solomon is still trying to describe something about what it means to live a life fearing God and now he's instead of just sort of telling stories through proverbs and 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 opining on what life under the sun is like he moves to proverbs that instruct us about what it means to live a life that is lived in fear of god that is lived honoring god in all of our being with with everything that we have with every with everything that we do what does it mean to honor god in all situations at all times that's really the first couple of the first couple of verses right from verse uh, 1 through verse 8 uh, he does this really interesting thing in those verses eh, where he says there's better is one thing than another and, and sort of puts them at extremes a good name is better than fine perfume the day of death is better than the day of birth it is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting and on and on he goes He's almost trying to describe, I think, um, sort of two ways of approaching and living life. One being honoring to God and the other uh, not. The other might seem like it's the way to live, but counterintuitively, it's the way that leads to death and destruction and, and it's just not good. You can think of it maybe this way. Have you ever seen The Price is Right? It's a, it's a TV game show. It used to be hosted by Bob Barker. Now it's hosted by Drew Carey. Um, really funny, entertaining, wholesome sort of show. <laughs> uh, I remember whenever I was homesick, I would watch The Price is Right, and I just love seeing that big wheel spin. And a couple of times, people hit it on the dollar, and I went as wild as they did because I was so excited for them. Anyways, at the end of the game, there are these showcases, these big prizes that really could could um, sometimes really change a person's life. And maybe I think we can think of what Solomon is describing is sort of like two showcases. It's two uh, two ways of thinking about life and the, the orientation of life and how we live our lives that we get to choose. One leading to eternal life, the other leading to death. And so we see in one showcase, things like having a hearty bank account, or as, as it puts it, having fine perfume. Fine perfume was very expensive. So I, I will say a hearty bank account just to make it applicable to us today. It's the first showcase, a hearty bank account, having just a life that's like a birthday party, um, having a house filled with feasting and laughter and pleasure, singing and and dancing and and uh, and and a, and a life marked by pride. That is, you're proud of yourself, proud of what you do, proud of the things that you've accomplished. That's showcase number one, that you can choose a life that has all those things. Hardy bank account, a, a life of, 
full celebration, feasting, pleasure, singing and laughter, and, and, and pride in your work, wow, what a showcase. And then you can also choose another showcase, showcase number two, where you can have a good name, that is, you could live a righteous life. But you'll also, instead of, instead of experiencing that, that, that birthday, you'll experience the day of death. And your house will be a house of mourning. And you'll be frustrated and mourn. You'll be rebuked. And you'll also have opportunity, immense opportunity for patience. Well, I don't know about you, but those are two showcases. And there's one that especially in how our world talks about life, only one of those seems all that enticing, eh? But only one of them leads to eternal life, and it's not the one that's enticing. It's the other. Showcase number two. Consistently, a good name is better than that fine perfume. The day of death is better than the day of your birth. It's better to have a house of mourning than those that house of than go, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. And it says the living should take this to heart. Again and again, Solomon confronts us with this fact that we are mortal, that we that we have a we have an expiration date, so to speak, that our lives as we know them under the sun will one day end. And so how are we living with that knowledge? We should take that knowledge to heart. It's, it's wisdom and knowledge that everyone has, but that everyone wants to run away from. You see this, actually, in just how people talk about the dangers of coronavirus and the, the immense anxiety that, comes, that has come along with it culturally of being so afraid of death and um, there, there was a, a popular newspaper that, that, that came out and said in one of its headlines that humans were not designed to be confronted by their morality, or uh, mortality, excuse me, that we weren't designed to confront the fact that we will one day die. And that made this, this argument all around the coronavirus and, and some of the, um, the challenges that have arisen from this pandemic and ecclesiastes would look at that headline and say what are you talking about number one thank you for acknowledging that we are designed um, but number two we were absolutely designed to confront our mortality to confront the fact that we will one day die and why is that it's because it's a reminder that we are creation and god is creator that we were designed to live a particular way and that designer gets to tell us what that way was. And we can ignore the designer. We could say, you know what? I'd rather live my own way, but then expect the consequences that come from that. Which way on a daily basis do we choose to live? Do we, do we often start the day and say, I want showcase number one. Today I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, go to the house of feasting. I'm going to be filled with laughter and lots of pleasure and, and, and singing and be proud. Or do we say, you know what? It's better to, it's better on the day of our death and the day of our birth. We're going to keep 
the fact that we are that I am a mortal human being and that God is the immortal other who stooped down into creation to save me. I'm going to keep that at the front of mind throughout the day and allow it to orient my life. I'm going to experience frustration and patience, but that patience in frustration is going to build character and that character will, to, will lead me into a deeper hope in God. Solomon's reminding us we are not God. We experience death and so take this to heart because with death comes judgment and with judgment will either come condemnation apart from Christ or eternal life with Christ. And the decisions that we make here and now on a daily basis matter for that very reason. The rest of this pat the, 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 the <coughs> excuse me, the rest of this passage tends to is, is, is really just a bunch of proverbs. And the, uh, some of them are really interesting. Some of them are self-explanatory. Some of them speak to our cultural moment. I'll give a one example from verse nine. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not be quick. In being provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools, a.k.a. don't get offended. And in our world, offense is sort of looked at as being this really positive thing, like, oh, you can be offended um, and and sort of change the, the course of a discussion and a conversation, and we should be really careful not to offend each other. Christians should be the most unoffendable people in the planet, on the on the on, on Earth, this should this be because consistently through this passage and throughout the rest of Scripture, we're told to be very slow to anger, to be very slow to speak, and to be very quick to listen. To paraphrase James, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. If we are being quickly provoked into anger, into to being quickly provoked in our very spirits it's a sign that we that there's something wrong with our calibration in, in our relationship with god that that relationship is we're not paying enough attention to it because if we were we'd be, be getting filled with the spirit more and more which would increase our patience and remove our quickness to anger quickness to anger is a sign of sin encroaching on our lives that is not to say never get angry scripture says you, were, you it, scripture assumes that we will be angry at different points in our lives but it uh, it's always be slow to anger when you're angry don't sin in your anger uh, don't give the devil a foothold get rid of it before the sun goes down because there's something about anger that chokes out compassion and love and care for other human beings and anger stops us from being able to see other people as image bearers of God who are who are loved so much by God that he sent his son to die for them and to be raised for them so that they could have eternal life just like we do anger stops us from being able to see it and instead of seeing people through 
through the the blood of Christ and his finished work we see three see see people maybe through the through the 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 red hot fires of our anger and it's just not right do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools friends don't be fools do not be quick to being provoked don't be quick to anger instead ask god to give you his spirit to make you be a person who is very slow to anger very slow to speak and quick to listen so that you can be a person of peace in situations even in those situations that might make you angry really a self-explanatory a very self-explanatory generally speaking proverb and it has all sorts of applications for us i think and there are there are more like that another one that stood out to me um verse 13 consider what god has done well actually let's let's jump back a little bit with wisdom is like an inheritance in verse 11 it's a good thing and benefits those who see the sun wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter but the advantage of knowledge is this wisdom preserves those who have it now this is coming from solomon who collected riches upon riches upon riches and he's saying you know what wisdom is better it benefits those who see the sun it's like a shelter just as money is but money doesn't preserve those who have it it tends to eat away at their soul the more money you have the more you want and the less you want to give away which means that you're being less compassionate less loving having more money actually tends to um tends to tends to uh, crush your heart slowly but surely over time if anyone would know this well it would be solomon but verse 13 consider what god has done who can straighten what he has made crooked when times are good be happy but when times are bad consider this god has made the one as well as the other god has made the one as well as the other and so what does he conclude therefore no one can discover anything about their future <laughs> no one can discover anything about their future if you think that you can get a sense of what the future entails for you i've got news for you no one can discover anything about their future and all these things in our culture that would say no you can you can you can sort of grasp hold of your future you can know where you are going you can study the stars and come up with horoscopes that will give you a, a sense of of where your life is is leading towards what what good things are going to come your way in the future interestingly never the bad things always the good hey with stuff with stuff like horoscopes um this passage is saying no 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 you can't know your future and you can't control your future as much as you think you can so be careful so I, you know this is this is maybe not a direct application but i'm going to say it anyways maybe this will be controversial but oh, i'm in i'm in a mood um you know stay away from horoscopes you can't know the future and anything that 
tries to tell you, oh, no, you can know the future. You can know that some of, maybe not the details, but you can know this or that and what's what's coming your way. Uh, they're just They're just bad. They're rotten to the core. Reading things like horoscopes, which is astrology, and what's what is astrology? Astro astrology are claims to divine information about human affairs that you find out by studying the movement of of celestial objects and bodies. It's literally look, it's literally looking to the stars and and trying to tell the future based on it, and saying this is divine knowledge that I'm getting from this. That is, if you if you really take that seriously. It will erode your trust in God over time, and taking that stuff to heart is inviting the devil to speak into your heart. And why would you want to do that? God says, be thankful for the good times. When times are good, be happy. And when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. God is always in it and with us, and we cannot know our future, let alone grasp hold of it um, in, in, in some of the ways that we try to. I think this is, this is part of the reason why things like the Enneagram have become really popular, because it gives us a sense that we can control something about our future, something about our responses. We can know ourselves better, and by uh, just getting to, but by just knowing ourselves better and better and better, or or at least saying that we do, um, maybe then we can control the future and the and the and the way that the way that our lives are going. Just consider this though, uh, particularly about the Enneagram. Its inventor described the Enneagram as as uh, the Enneagram of personality. It's a personality test, but he described it as being given to him. By an angel called Metatron in a drug-induced dream. And if that doesn't sound demonic to you, you need to read scripture more. Stay far away from this stuff. I'm getting. I know. Uh, uh, that's that's probably even more controversial because the enneagram is getting popular. But I and and I know that it seems on point. But it seems on point because maybe there is something. There, there's some. There's some little bit of it. That's true, and then it gets twisted and twisted and twisted. And like astrology, well, it's, 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 it seems to be actually a form of astrology, but man, I don't know. I would stay away from it. I would not trust it, especially because of its source. Again, why would you want the devil to speak to your heart? Why would you want that? Why would you want... An angel who masquerades... Why would you want the devil who masquerades as an angel of light to be able to speak to your heart and direct it to where he wants it to go? That might be a hard word for you. But please, you know, take this stuff to heart. Scripture talks about this stuff, divination and discovering anything about the future. Uh, it talks about it repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament, because doing this stuff and really engaging with it draws us away from Jesus and focusing on Jesus and focusing on his grace and being transformed by his grace and instead tries to give us categories that we can 
um, that we can manipulate and grab hold of oftentimes so that we don't have to deal with with the things that God wants us to deal with in our life, such as don't be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools, as one example. Here's one, another one. Uh, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, don't be surprised when you hear someone talk about you the way that you talk about them. Don't be surprised when you hear someone talk about you the way that you talk about them. Think about how you have talked about other people in the past month, let's say. And think about those times maybe when you were hypercritical or negative or just downright rude and dishonoring to them. This passage is saying, you know what? Pay attention to the words that you speak because you may just hear it being spoken back to you. Use your words to build other people up, not to tear them down, even if they can't hear what's being said. Because guaranteed at some point, they will hear it, if not from you, then from someone else. You know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others, therefore don't curse others. And maybe they won't curse you. But let's, uh, let's take a look at maybe the, the hardest to really interpret passage in this entire text. Uh, in verse 26, Solomon's talking about um, testing, uh, testing wisdom and determining what it means to be wise. And he said, uh, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Remember, <laughs> do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. Don't, don't get offended. Because <laughs> this is one of those things that when we first read, maybe it's, it'll, it, it really seems quite profoundly offensive, although for the original readers, it would not have been. And if we put ourselves in the position of Solomon having thousands of concubines, just tons and tons of of wives and and people who really were there to fulfill his sexual desires having all the money in the world and and being drawn away by them from god towards idolatry you can sort of see what he's saying he also uses in proverbs this idea of a woman leading people away as a as a metaphor for folly and so he's also used this the, this as a metaphor previously in other passages of scripture and so it seems to me that he's doing a couple of things he's using his life experience to to say what he has lived and the wisdom he's gleaned from it but he's also 
sort of uh, building into this metaphor he's already built in, in other parts of scripture. This woman seems to be the embodiment of showcase number one. This woman's attractive, but she's a snare and it leads to death, not abundant life. This is likely, in fact, this might even be some a particular person that Solomon's thinking of from his life, but who's been left unnamed and therefore unknown. But whoever this was, this woman uh, certainly seems to be a archetype of some sort, a larger metaphor from scripture. And it really isn't about the woman. It's about what is being done. That is being drawn away from God, which placed in different contexts, you can even just, uh, you, you, you can say, you know what? It's not just women who tempt people into sin. Men can do it too. The, the woman, the man thing is not the point. The point is the temptation to sin that he's getting at. What's more bitter than death? We could say a person who's a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are like chains. Someone who pleases God will escape them, but the sinner will be ensnared. There is a way to escape temptation. We can run from temptation because of Jesus. And by escaping her will please God. But sinners will always be ensnared. This isn't about the woman. It's about the ensnaring and temptation to sin. So if you are in relationship with someone who's constantly tempting you to do the opposite of what you know God wants of your life, they are doing what this what Solomon says this woman's doing. And he's saying it's better to die than to be ensnared like this. It's it's more bitter than death. It's more bitter than death. It's it's harder to swallow in a sense. When people ensnare us in sin, when they entice us to sin, when they trap our hearts and chain us down, that is not what God would have for our lives. He wants us to experience um, freedom and deliverance and and uh, really abundance. Though he defines that differently than our culture would. And so if we find ourselves in these relationships of people who are, who are making our lives more bitter than death, he says it's, it's pleasing to God to escape that and to not be ensnared. Look, says the teacher, to end off the chapter, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the th scheming of things while I am still searching but not finding I found one upright man among a thousand, and not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God created man, uh, humanity upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Again, we might focus today on the one man and no woman being upright, um, and say, oh, he's being sexist. But I don't think that's actually the case. Because... In an earlier verse, and I'm sure you uh, were able to read it, 
uh, when we were reading it uh, previously, he says in verse 20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, not one who does what is right and never sins. Not one. So it's not about the man and woman again. Um, there's Solomon has seen people be led away from God. Pe uh, Solomon has seen the people of God sin and be unholy. And Solomon, in all of his searching and trying to find out the meaning of life under the sun, he's saying, I've only met one man among a thousand who is righteous, who is holy. And no women. Which, like, one in a thousand is actually not that great, eh? And who is it? We're never told. And there's all sorts of debate about it. Who is this Who is this one man that Solomon has met and is holy? We don't know, but he, he concludes by saying God created humanity upright. God created humanity without sin as being... Uh, as as beings who were able to live holy lives by by their own choice but they have gone in search of many schemes we have been drawn away from the scheme or from the from the plan of god for our lives to schemes that would direct our lives away from him We're never told by Solomon who this one man is that he has in mind. But you know what? We know of one man who is absolutely holy and righteous. And he's the one whom we cling to. That's Jesus. You know, in this, um, I think one of the, one of the things that Solomon's doing is is reflecting on Genesis. We've seen him reflect on Genesis already in this book. But this this phrase he said, "I found one upright man among a thousand. Man, the the phrase for man in Hebrew is the same word for Adam. Um, they're they're semantically linked, and I think that's important for us as Christians because Jesus is constantly in the in the New Testament described as the new Adam or the second Adam." or the final Adam, like the, there's this sense with which a new humanity is being brought forth through Jesus. And so, you know, the, the first Adam turned away from God in rebellion, but the second Adam, this new Adam in Jesus, turns us towards God in repentance. The old Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but this new Adam invites us to eat from the fruit of his tree, the cross, his broken body and his, 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 his shed blood for our sins. That the old Adam, the first Adam, was disobedient and his disobedience led to our condemnation. But in Jesus, the new Adam, we see a holy one who was sinless and fully obedient and through his obedience we are saved. The first Adam is all about showcase number one. But the second Adam is all about showcase number two. And teaches us, Jesus teaches us 
in all that he does and everything in, in, in really who he is, how to live a life that is lived in the fear of the Lord. So which way are we choosing to live? Which way have you been choosing to live recently? And which will you choose today and every other day that is about to come? I invite you to, to spend some time in this passage this week and allow God, by his spirit, to speak to you, to give you a righteous life that isn't your own, that is actually his, that it would draw you. I, I'm, I, I'm going to pray that it would draw you into, into deeper relationship with Jesus. But you'd also experience this sense of exactly what this showcase number two talks about, that it's the day of death is better than the day of birth, that it's better to enter into a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, that frustration is better than laughter, a good, a sad face is good for the heart. It's better to heed rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. And extortion turns a wise person into a fool. A bribe corrupts the heart. It's better... The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. I pray that God would make you into a person whose life is blessed to be this showcase number two, to be marked by these things. And you know what? The only way that it's possible is if we grasp hold of the one true Adam, the, the new Adam, the second Adam who bursts forth from him, self, a new humanity that's drawn together and really brought forth by our repentance, that's celebrated by eating the fruit of the tree of the cross, and that it's marked by an obedience to Jesus that is only ever a response to his obedience to God, an obedience that led him to death, even death on a cross for our sake. Which way of life have you been choosing? And which are you going to choose today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that your word would speak to us, even, at a, even as it has been speaking to us to confront uh, to to yeah to confront us with your presence with your expectation of us with your with your grace show us the places where you want to transform us and that we have been putting up barriers to stop that from happening rebuke us father of the places where we have not listened to you Make our houses houses of mourning, mourning over our sin. And help us take to heart the fact that we, that, that death is the destiny of everyone. 
and that our lives matter today and our decisions matter today. And Father, help us be empowered to live lives of wisdom. That is living, uh, help us to live lives that are, that are directed and shaped by our fear, our honor of you. And Father, give us the courage to see the world through the shed blood of your Son and our Savior instead of the anger that the world wants us to see the world through. And make us wise and compassionate. Not fools, but people who who extend your kingdom by being obedient to your command to go and make disciples and spread your kingdom through all the relationships of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.